This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to your Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans, and sometimes their family members. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. In honor of Mother's Day this month, I wanted to bring you the story of TikTok's most requested case to date. It's the story of monster mom, Tiffany Klapik. I swear, when I first joined TikTok back in late 2021, everyone recommended this case. I covered it in three parts in 2022, and it is one of a handful of cases that I have that has over 1 million views. That version is very short, and I will be putting it up on my YouTube so you can go check it out there. But today, I decided to bring you the full story as a podcast exclusive. Trigger warning, today's case does involve the death of a child, the neglect of various children living in base housing, a cheating spouse, and a child protective services department that didn't know their asses from their elbows. You've been warned. Listen at your own risk. Join me today as I tell you the tragic story of little Tamron Klapik. Now, let's dig in. Deployments are a part of military life, and if you accept that as true, which you should because it is, you must also accept as true the fact that many parents are left behind to single parent, while the military parent is off in a distant faraway land. Single parenting is hard AF, especially when you have three kids. Trust me, I should know I have my own three and as a single mom, it's not easy. Single parenting with three daughters is where 21-year-old Tiffany Klapik found herself in the summer of 2012. Tiffany was a military spouse married to Air Force military member Thomas Klapik. Together, they had three little girls, a three-year-old toddler, a 22-month-old named Tamron, and a six-month-old infant. They lived on base housing at Dias Air Force Base in Texas. Now, I don't know a lot about Dias except that it's in Abilene, but I hear that it's kind of in the sticks. I could be wrong, so please don't come at me. Our story takes us to Tuesday, August 28, 2012. That day, a woman called 911 to report that she found her daughter unresponsive with purple lips. First responders rushed to 181 Washington Loop, hoping there was something they could do for this little girl. But when they got to the scene and rushed inside the home, they were taken aback. The first airman to arrive on scene was Master Sergeant Matthew Jones, a security forces troop, and he said that the smell inside the home was rancid. Jones described that it was an overwhelming stench of urine and feces that was so bad he literally described it as feeling like he got hit in the face with a tennis racket. Once the first responders got over the shock of the smell, they ran inside where they found the 911 caller in the kitchen. 
The woman was on the floor clutching her naked, lifeless daughter in her arms while sobbing uncontrollably. Sergeant Jones took one look at the little girl in the woman's arms and he could tell she was dead. The little girl's eyes were glazed over and gray. Sergeant Jones checked the little girl's tiny wrist for a pulse. Her name, he now learned, was Tamron, and the mom was Tiffany Klapik. While Jones was checking on Tamron, Tiffany yelled, Bring her back! Save my baby! But as the cops surveilled the home, they became even more concerned. There were two additional kids in the house, and while alive, they were in desperate need of medical attention, and they appeared near death. Similar to Tamron, all the children appeared to have burns on their bodies. Now, it's important to note in this case that while the death of a child occurred on base, it involved a dependent kid and a dependent spouse. Therefore, the local PD in this case, Abilene Police Department, they had jurisdiction over the case, but the Air Force did investigate alongside the civilians. Rightfully so, Child Protective Services, or CPS for short, they were called to the scene due to the death and due to the two surviving children. This case gets real squirrely with CPS's involvement and there is some drama that takes place later on. So I'll get to the drama a little bit later so as to not confuse this story. But what I'll say here is that the on-call CPS caseworker was a woman named Rebecca T. She was fixing to head to Dias Air Force Base to tend to the children when the CPS supervisor, Barbara M., showed her a picture of Tamron's body. Barbara received the image from one of the investigators on scene, and she claimed that she showed the picture to Rebecca T. to prepare her for the scene she was about to walk into. But Barbara M. did show the picture to three other CPS workers who really had no business seeing that picture. Before Rebecca left, she also learned that up until recently, six days to be exact, there had been an open, I repeat, open case against the Klapiks. But that CPS case was closed by caseworker Claudia G., who was recently promoted to investigation supervisor. So what the hell? What changed so much from a week ago that a CPS case was closed, but now one of the children was dead and the other two were near death? Rebecca was going to have her work cut out for her. Rebecca and another caseworker quickly went to base. They were immediately taken to the surviving sisters, and all it took was one look and they knew the girls were in critical condition. Now, this next part doesn't make any sense, but it was taken from a court opinion, so I'm assuming it's what happened. What Rebecca did next when she arrived on base was odd. She placed the two little girls in her car and drove them to Hendrick Medical Center. Now, it's possible that EMS had not yet arrived at the home, although that seems unlikely, so I don't know why that decision was made. When the girls were treated at the hospital, Rebecca noticed the girls had burns on their bodies. And when she told the treating clinicians that the deceased child back at the house had similar burns, Rebecca then started texting with her CPS co-workers asking them to send her the picture of Tamron's body. Everyone got squirrely, rightfully so, because who the hell sends pictures of a dead body during an active investigation? Or at all? Eventually, they all told each other to delete the picture and Rebecca was not able to show the picture to the medical folks. But there was a detective at the hospital, Frank Shoemaker, and he, under the proper authority, was able to show the picture to the medical professionals to assess the children's burns. So let's jump back to the house. One of the civilian detectives, Detective Ernest Mascarelli, he arrived on scene once he was notified of the death and one thing he immediately noticed on Tamron's body was that it appeared to have burns all over it. 
Once a search warrant was obtained, the crime scene techs, Randy Farmer and Wallace McDaniel, they processed the house for evidence. They took over 170 pictures of the inside of the house, documenting the house of horrors. The house was filthy. Clearly, there were children there, so there were tons of toys everywhere. But on top of that, there was food everywhere. But the kicker was the human and pet waste in almost every room. I was unable to find out the exact layout of this house and who slept where, but Tamron had her own room with a crib in it. Her crib mattress was found to be covered in feces. Her sister's mattresses in another room also appeared to have human waste on it. The kitchen pantry was the most shocking of all, because as reported by the investigators, it was fully stocked. Now, this is shocking because of what the children suffered. You see, the two surviving children who were now at the hospital were severely malnourished to the point of near starvation. How in the world could this be possible? While detectives were processing the scene, they started noticing a man's belongings at the Klepeek home, and it wasn't the belongings of the man of the house, Thomas, who was now deployed. Detectives found dog tags and some other medical paperwork for a man named Senior Airman Christopher Perez. Hmm. This was odd, they thought. Also inside the home, they found a pregnancy test in the trash, which also piqued their interest. Then, while a cop was outside maintaining security of the home, an airman just kind of beep-bopped along and asked, hey, what's going on in that house? The guy was real nosy, saying he was friends with the people who lived there. The cop took the guy's name, his name was Christopher Perez, and just told him to skedaddle. Eventually, when the inside crime techs and the outside cop put two and two together, they immediately went looking for this Perez character because they were very interested in talking to him. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy, and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T, for 15% off. Enjoy, and when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. 
Back at the Abilene police station in an interrogation room sat Tiffany Klapik. She underwent an intense, almost seven-hour interrogation where she told detectives a disjointed story. She said that the night prior, on August 27th, she went to the Walmart to pick out some new outfits for the girls. The following day, that same day, August 28th, she went to bathe the girls and get them all dressed up. She walked into Tamron's room to wake her, but she couldn't believe her eyes. Tamron was unresponsive in her crib. The first thing Tiffany noticed were Tamron's purple lips. She shouted, Tamron, Tamron! But nothing. She hoisted the child out of the crib, but all she got was a limp baby. Her eyes rolled back. Tiffany told detectives that she tried to revive Tamron by splashing cold water on her, but nothing was working. And then what Tiffany revealed next shocked even the most seasoned detectives. Tiffany revealed that four days before finding Tamron dead in her room, she walked into Tamron's room, changed her diaper, then locked Tamron in her room and left her there for four whole days. No food, no water, no diaper changes, no love, no snuggles for four days. What kind of monster does that? Tiffany had an excuse, though. She told detectives that her husband had deployed not too long ago. And well, she got overwhelmed taking care of three daughters all by herself. As to why she locked Tamron in her room and didn't check on her, she simply said she was sick and tired of potty training. Tiffany continued telling Detective Eric Vickers, quote, I really wasn't a good mom past few days. I've been honest, even though it makes me look horrible, end quote. At some point, she had the audacity to say, I don't want you to take them away because I was lazy. The DA didn't need much else. So with that, Tiffany was charged with injury to a child by omission and booked into the county jail. Her bond was set at $500,000. Now, this charge, injury to a child by omission, it means that a person who has custody or legal duty to take care of a child fails to take action to prevent injury to the child. The detectives were anxious to learn Tamron's autopsy results. The medical examiner who conducted Tamron's autopsy was immediately drawn to the burn marks on her body that everyone who saw her noticed. And the Emmy determined that the burns on her skin were chemical burns. The burns were a result of her skin being in contact with her own urine and feces for a long period of time. The Emmy noted that while the burns were horrible, that wasn't what killed her. Tamron died as a result of dehydration and malnutrition. That little girl was basically starved to death. Now, I just want to go back to the chemical burns real quick. Many of my listeners are parents. And if you could just imagine your child when they had a very bad diaper rash, just imagine what this baby suffered. Imagine a diaper rash, but 100 times worse because Tamron was not changed over a four-day period. Honestly, when I read that, my heart absolutely broke. On the malnourishment point, the Emmy noted that Tamron was 22 months old, but she was very, very tiny. She weighed in at 17 and a half pounds. While children range in weight from very small to very big, the Emmy noted that Tamron should not have been this tiny. She wasn't just small-framed. She was not fed. This case is so strange because the two surviving sisters were both treated for neglect and malnourishment, but it doesn't appear that they were locked in a room like Tamron. Why had Tiffany chosen Tamron to lock in a room? Let's talk about Airman Perez. 
Authorities brought him in for questioning to get his story. Why were his things found at Tiffany's house? Well, Perez was prepared to tell authorities. You see, what had happened was, was that Perez, who was a security forces troop, was getting ready for an upcoming deployment. When he learned he'd be leaving for a few months, he cleared out his apartment prior to leaving on pre-deployment training. Now, listen, if you've been in the military long enough, you know that this is very common practice, especially for single airmen. It's a way to just kind of save some money. You put your things in storage and you just come back and get a new lease. Well, Perez went on his pre-deployment training at a different base, but when he got back, he found out his deployment was canceled. Well, he now had no apartment, but instead of getting into a new lease, Perez decided he would just live in his car to keep saving money. Tiffany and Thomas Klapik knew Perez, and at some point, they got to chatting about Perez's predicament. And with Thomas's permission, because remember, he was deployed, they allowed Perez to couch surf at Tiffany's house while Thomas was gone. Now, let me just step in here because I can. As a mother of three who trusts literally no one, there is no way on God's green earth that I would let some random man couch surf with me and my children. Nope, sorry, not going to happen at my house. I know, I know, I know. This is going to upset some of you, but honestly, I don't care. This podcast is about vigilance, not just about murder. And listen, if you don't already know this, sexual assault and child sex assault is so rampant nowadays in this disturbed world. We need to be able to protect our children, not only from strangers, but from friends and even family members. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox now. And we're going to learn a little bit more about this Perez character. And like I said, I know many of you won't agree with me, but honestly, I said what I said and I'm not taking it back. Where was I? Thomas allowed Perez to move in. And on July 21st, 2012, Perez made himself at home in another man's house. While he was making this statement to detectives, he admitted, well, while I was at the house, Tiffany and I began a sexual relationship. And at some point, I upgraded from the couch to the master bedroom. In addition to shacking up with the lady of the house, who apparently was too overwhelmed to take care of her kids, but not too overwhelmed to be knocking boots with some random homeless airmen, well, he started to take on some kid duty. He admitted that Tiffany left the girls in his care on several occasions, including during the four-day period that no one bothered to check on Tamron. So let's just backtrack here. Tamron was found dead on a Tuesday. So that means that on Friday night, that was the last time she had her diaper change. So during that weekend, Tiffany left Perez to watch the girls. But this grown-ass man never bothered to do a head count. I mean, it was only three kids. He never bothered to change a diaper. He never offered food or water, nothing. The Air Force was not happy with Perez's conduct, and rightfully so. So they decided to take action, and they charged Perez for his part in Tamron's death. The Air Force felt that Perez had a duty for the children's care and that he endangered their physical health, safety, and welfare by failing to provide the most basic needs. With that, Perez was charged with three specifications for negligent dereliction of duty, three specifications of child endangerment, and one specification of adultery for sleeping with a married woman. In October of 2013, Perez waived his right to a jury trial and chose to have his case heard by a judge alone. For each specification of child endangerment, it should be noted, the charges stated that he had a duty for that child's care and had endangered that child by failing to provide food, fluids, diaper changes, and a sanitary living environment. 
The charge time frame was between when he moved in on July 21st and when Tamron was found dead on August 28th. These failures, the Air Force claimed, constituted culpable negligence. The prosecuting attorney in Perez's case stated, quote, if Perez had checked on them on Sunday or even Friday, he wouldn't have seen the same children he saw when he moved in, end quote. The prosecutor, Captain Gammons, described Airman Perez as self-absorbed and narcissistic. And get this, during his interview with Abilene police, Perez described himself as, get this, the unluckiest man alive. I'm sorry, what? Were you starved to death for four days sitting in your own feces while your mom was shacking up with some dude? I don't think so. Well, Perez's defense attorney at the court-martial then seemed to make matters worse, in my personal opinion. At the court-martial, the defense attorney, no kidding, argued that due to a previous sexual assault charge against him, Airman Perez would have been unwise to enter Tamron's room after her mother told him not to go in there. Yes, you heard me correctly. Perez had a previous sexual assault charge. Whether it was proven or not, I don't care. Who the hell wants that around their three children? On October 18th, 2013, Perez was acquitted of the three specifications of negligent dereliction of duty. But before you get crazy, he was convicted of the other four specifications. He was sentenced to a dishonorable discharge, three years in confinement, forfeiture of all pay and allowances, and reduced from E4 to E1. I should add that the negligent dereliction of duty, the one he was acquitted of, it stemmed from the government arguing that Perez had a duty slash a standard of care because he was a security forces member. And I think that's why the judge acquitted him of that charge. Anyway, of course, Perez appealed his conviction. And in 2015, the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals overturned Perez's conviction for child endangerment. The conviction for adultery stuck. The charges were then referred again, but they were deferred for some reason. By 2017, a rehearing had not yet been held when Perez suddenly submitted what we call in the Air Force a Chapter 4 request. It's a request to be administratively separated in lieu of a court-martial. After lengthy consideration, and I'm assuming not wanting to have another full-blown trial, the government agreed to the Chapter 4. The charges were then withdrawn and dismissed. Perez was then given an Article 15 for the four specifications, and he was discharged from the Air Force with the worst administrative service characterization, an under-other-than-honorables-condition discharge, a.k.a. a UOTHC. But let's go back to right after Perez's initial court-martial in 2013. Tiffany was called to testify in his court-martial, but no one was about to give her ass immunity, so she pled the fifth and didn't testify. Her trial began a few months after Perez's initial trial concluded. In January of 2014, 17 months after Tamron's death, Tiffany Klepik's trial got underway. Due to the notoriety of the case, they summoned double their usual jurors to ensure they could see an unbiased jury of 12 plus two alternates. Most of the following information was made possible due to reporting in Go San Antonio and KTXS 12 ABC. Opening statements are always a good place to get the roadmap of the trial. If done correctly, you will see the highlight reel. But defense opening statements are always interesting because for the first time, you get to hear from the defense side. Will they claim insanity? Will they claim self-defense? Will they claim it wasn't me? Did a ghost make them do it? You get the picture. So let's talk about opening statements in Tiffany's case. 
First up in every opening statement is the prosecution because they have the burden in the case. In this case, the prosecution told the jury most of what you've already heard here. But they also said that while Perez was living at the house, Tiffany was gone most nights from midnight until 4 a.m. Now, it's odd because I couldn't find in the reporting what she was doing during this time, just that she was gone and Perez was at the house with the girls. Another shocker that we learn is that on August 22nd, six days before Tamron died, Tiffany called a man named Lenny Guzman to come and babysit the girls so that she could get a tattoo. A what? A tattoo, yes. And do you care to guess what Tiffany got a tattoo of? Well, I'll tell you. She got a tattoo of a Chinese symbol of a mother and a daughter with her three daughters' birthdays on them. What? Oh my gosh, I can't. I just can't with this woman. Well, when it was his defense attorney's turn for his opening statement, he was up against a lot. But Tiffany's attorney, George Parnum, did not disappoint. You see, Tiffany comes from a pretty effed up background, but it doesn't excuse neglecting your child. But anyway, the defense revealed in opening statements that Tiffany had a shitty childhood. She was abandoned by her mother when she was five. She was left under her grandmother's care who couldn't really protect her. From the age of five, she was sexually abused by her uncle and her adoptive father. As reported by KTXS 12, she was offered up to vagrants at public parks for sexual favors. Her older brother was a scumbag and held her at knife point once. Her older sister eventually abandoned her own children. I mean, Tiffany Klapique had no one. So she got married in her teens and moved to Dias Air Force Base with her husband. She had three kids with this airman. And then when the baby was just a few months old, her husband volunteered, I repeat, volunteered to deploy, leaving her alone to care for the kids in the home. While the attorney spoke, Tiffany wept at the defense table. Mr. Parnum continued that Tiffany wasn't claiming insanity. She was simply saying that her background influenced her ability to mother. Now, of note, Tiffany's defense attorney was the same man who successfully defended Andrea Yates during her 2006 retrial. Now, all my true crime buffs know exactly who that is. And for those of you who don't, Andrea Yates was the mom back in 2001 who chased her five children around the house and drowned them one by one in the bathtub. And then she laid them in her bed. I mean, I think she left one of them still in the bathtub. So just reading this woman, Andrea Yates, her Wikipedia page is devastating. Anyway, Tiffany hired that attorney. Not sure how she could afford it, but that's neither here nor there. During the opening statement, Tiffany's attorney also said that Tiffany suffered from reactive attachment disorder. KTXS reported that reactive attachment disorder occurs when individuals don't establish healthy bonds with parents and caregivers. It's the result of neglect, abuse, or even being orphaned. The first witness for the state was now retired Master Sergeant Matthew Jones. He was the first first responder on scene. He testified to how gruesome the scene was, how pervasive the stench of urine and feces were. He testified that the smell was so bad that it attached to his uniform. Even after washing his uniform several times, he couldn't get the smell off of them. So he eventually had to throw them away. Detective Ernest Moscarelli basically testified that he wished he could unsee what he saw. It practically still haunted him. The jury got to watch Tiffany's almost seven-hour-long recorded police interview. They saw how Tiffany testified to finding her baby. Blue lips, limp, eyes rolled back, and as she was saying this to detectives, 
She wrapped her arms around her midsection and rocked back and forth, back and forth. As reported by Go San Angelo, Tiffany made this exact motion at trial while the video was being played. Eventually, she did this exact same thing when her husband was testifying. During her initial police statement, Tiffany asked various times if she could get an attorney. But because she had not actually requested an attorney, the statement was fair game. The video also showed her throwing up in a garbage can several times and asked for cigarette breaks to calm her nerves. She describes how she regularly fed and bathed the children, which honestly, it couldn't be further from the truth based on the condition of the kids in the house. She told detectives on the tape that she was having a hard time raising her three small children while her then husband was deployed to the Middle East. She said, quote, it's so hard to do everything by myself, end quote. Crime scene photos were also shown to the jury, including Tamron's crib, where the mattress was soaked in urine and feces. During her police interview, Tiffany admitted to detectives that she had changed Tamron's diaper, then locked her in her room for the next four days without checking on her once. The medical examiner testified for the prosecution, describing how Tamron's body was covered in several chemical burns. She suffered these from laying face down in her own waist for an extended period of time. Testimony was given by Dr. Justin Smith, who had treated the surviving sisters at the hospital, and he described how Tiffany's daughters had similar chemical burns as Tamron. They also had several diaper rashes when they were rescued from the House of Horrors. Their hair was matted and their skin was stuck to the diapers they were wearing that had not been changed for days. Dr. Smith also testified that the surviving children suffered developmental delays. They required hospitalization due to their deteriorated condition. At some point, Tiffany had to be physically removed from the courtroom by the bailiffs when she saw Tamron's autopsy pictures on the TV screen as they were being shown to the jury. Several CPS investigators were subpoenaed to testify. Two of them declined, saying if they were forced to go to trial, they would exercise their right to remain silent because some of them were facing their own legal troubles because of this case. But more on that in a second. Jurors did get to hear that three CPS workers had not been cooperative with Abilene PD's investigation. Once all the evidence was presented, the jury deliberated for seven hours. Tiffany was ultimately convicted of injury to a child by omission. She was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Tiffany pleaded to the judge that this was unfair. She didn't feel that she deserved any of this. After the trial, one juror told KTXS Channel 12 News, that the entire trial process was stressful, but they felt they arrived at a fair decision. He did offer up that he felt that others, not just Tiffany, should have been on trial. He felt that the deployed dad was partially to blame. He specifically felt this way due to CPS's prior involvement with the family for several years, dating back to when Thomas was home. Many people have felt this way throughout the years, but Assistant DA Joel Wilkes has spoken on this very issue. He has said, we can't prosecute people based on feelings. We prosecute based on evidence. And Tiffany herself said that when Thomas was around, he was an amazing father. D.A. Wilkes said, without evidence, prosecution is not practical. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. 
Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. Tamron's story wouldn't be complete without telling you all about CPS's involvement in this case. Like, what in the actual hell was happening with Abilene's CPS? Here's a timeline that Myrtle put together for me of all the CPS actions and what led to three kids being starved, one child dying, all while supposedly under CPS's watchful eye. It all started on April 9th, 2010, two and a half years before Tamron's death. In fact, Tamron hadn't even been born yet. On that day, CPS received a medical report that Tiffany's oldest and only child at the time, who was nine months old, was not given her prescription medication, which was a medical necessity since the child suffered from a chronic condition. CPS looked into the case, but ultimately ruled out any neglect after they determined the neglect was not a continuing issue. A year later, on April 27, 2011, CPS got another report. This time, it was a report of physical neglect for Tamron, who was only six months old at the time of the complaint. CPS looked into it and provided the family with resources to assist, specifically in the form of early childhood intervention, and they even provided daycare services for the family to give them a break. Five months later, on September 29, 2011, another complaint for medical neglect came in for both children. On October 1, 2011, CPS had a face-to-face -face with Tiffany and Thomas. It's unclear exactly what happened during this face-to-face, -face, but three weeks later, on October 19, the caseworker and her supervisor, well, they felt confident that the medical neglect could be ruled out and they marked the case for closure. But there was one little problem. They never closed the case, and it sat open and untouched for 10 months. And then, on August 22, 2012, six days before Tamron's death, a CPS worker named Claudia G., she was getting ready to promote to supervisory investigator. She opened up the Clapeak file, and without reaching out to the family for one final chat, she simply closed the case, which was not protocol, because protocol calls that a face-to-face -face visit is required to close the case. And she was also supposed to get someone else to sign off on the case closure, which never happened. This is truly sad to think that maybe someone could have saved those three little girls, especially someone charged with protecting children in high-risk environments. You see, what Claudia G. would have known if she would have made that follow-up call is she would have learned that in the 10 to 11 months since they decided to close the case, but didn't, the family dynamics had changed. In those 10 months, they had a new baby. Tiffany stopped working and Thomas deployed. Now, these three things, a new baby, losing a job, and also a deployment, those are three huge life changes. 
Well, a few weeks after Tamron's death on October 16, 2012, Abilene police detectives announced that three CPS supervisors were now under investigation for tampering with evidence in Tamron's case. And on top of this, several CPS workers were refusing to cooperate with the investigation into Tamron's death. When all of this went down, Claudia G. ultimately quit her job. Something else that came up during this case was about an unprofessional relationship between a CPS worker and Thomas Klapik that began after Tamron's death. Now, just a reminder, Thomas Klapik is Tamron's dad. During Tiffany's trial, KTXS broke the news saying that two CPS employees had resigned and two more were disciplined when the inappropriate relationship was discovered. Now get this, the CPS supervisor who hooked up with Tamron's dad, her name was Tiffany Gann. Tiffany Gann eventually broke her silence on the stand, but outside of the jury's knowledge, and she gave testimony that was basically her side of the story. She said that she met Thomas, Tamron's dad, in September at a bar called Cabo's while playing darts. Now, if you're tracking, this would have been soon after Thomas returned from his deployment. Well, Tiffany Gann was claiming that she met Thomas before she was assigned to Tamron's case. But this was rebuffed by a detective who claimed he saw Tiffany Gann at the Klapik house on the day that Tamron was discovered dead. In any event, Gann said that she and Thomas dated for a little less than two months. A different caseworker ended up stepping down after it was leaked that she knew about Gann's relationship with Thomas but said nothing. Well, listen, eventually charges were laid against some CPS employees for all the screw-ups in Tamron's case. Martha Whitaker, a CPS supervisor, was charged with tampering with evidence. But years later, her charges were dropped because they couldn't prove she was involved beyond a reasonable doubt. Gretchen Denny, the CPS supervisor who told her employee to delete the picture of Tamron's body, she was arrested and charged with tampering with evidence in August of 2015. In 2018, she was convicted and sentenced to 60 days in jail and six years of probation. But in May of 2021, the conviction was overturned by the appellate court. Then the 11th Court of Appeals in Texas recommended that Gretchen be acquitted. Soon after Thomas returned from his deployment, he filed for divorce. At some point, he separated from the Air Force and was granted conditional custody of his surviving daughters. Thomas Klapik was granted a divorce from Tiffany on July 31, 2013, 11 months after his daughter died due to her mother's neglect. After Tiffany was sentenced, she signed over her parental rights to Kathy B., Tamron's paternal grandmother. In one of the articles I read to prepare for this case, I learned that Tiffany clearly was overwhelmed by motherhood. But the reason she continued to have children with her husband was because she wanted to give him a boy. She said that the more girls she kept popping out, the further distant her husband became. And she wanted to bring him back. Now listen, this statement made me both pissed off and sad. First, it made me pissed off because I am so sick and tired of people asking mothers with only one gender kids the freaking question, are you going to try for a boy? Are you going to try for a girl? No, you asshat. I am perfectly happy with all the same gender children. So mind your freaking business. Oh, can you tell that I get that question a lot? Listen, I do feel somewhat sad for Tiffany and any other woman who feels this way. Because when I first dropped this video a year ago on TikTok about what Tiffany was going through and wanting to give her husband a boy, so many people chimed in that their significant other wanted to keep having kids specifically to try for a gender. So. If you are going through that, I just want to say I am so sorry. 
And just know that if you want more kids, that's great. But if you feel overwhelmed by motherhood, it's okay to say no to having more children. It's your body and ultimately you will be responsible for them. Tamarin Harper Klapik was born on October 13, 2010. She was only 22 months old when she died on August 28, 2012. Her headstone reads, quote, The tears in her eyes we can wipe away, but the ache in her hearts will always stay, end quote. When I found Tamron's page on Find a Grave, I found that there was a poem, and I want to read the poem today because I think it's fitting to end this episode. Quote, God saw you getting tired when help was not to be. He closed his arms around you and whispered, come to me. In tears we saw you sinking, we watched you fade away. Our hearts were almost broken, you fought so hard to stay. But when we saw you sleeping so peacefully from pain, we could not wish you back to suffer so again. So keep your arms around her, Lord, and give her special care. Make up for all she suffered and all that seemed unfair. End quote. There have been two cases that I have covered on the podcast that have really affected me because of what I was going through in that moment. The first time was when I covered Cindy Ray's case back in 2020. When I covered that case, I was pregnant. And if you recall, Cindy Ray was the military spouse who was murdered for the baby in her belly. When I recorded that episode, I felt some sort of way about being pregnant, you know? This go around for Tamron's case, I covered the death of a 22 month old who had two sisters and I have a 23 month old and three daughters total. So these are cases that just tended to affect me. Reading this case and the court opinions related to this case really made my skin crawl at the thought of neglecting your very own child in such a horrendous manner. I do not claim to be a perfect mom. In fact, I am far from it. But I just don't understand how two adults in a home can ignore a crying baby. Sometimes my baby cries in her crib and it breaks my heart. While I hate waking up in the middle of the night, I go to her, I change her diaper, and then I rock her back to sleep. And the first thing she tells me every single morning is, eat, eat. <laughs> yes, girl, we are going to eat, I tell her as I give her a cup of milk. I highly believe that there was something terribly wrong with Tiffany, and I really do feel for her past. Maybe she was suffering from postpartum depression, but she never got the help. I also have to stop and wonder if anyone from Thomas's unit even bothered to check on Tiffany while Thomas was deployed. I was blessed that on the last two occasions that my ex-husband was deployed, his unit checked up on me often and made sure that I knew of all the available resources if I needed them. This story goes to show that we need to take care of one another. I often wonder if neighbors noticed or if anyone noticed what was going on with the kids in the Klopik house. All right, everyone, I just want to say thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for recommending this case. If you're new here, welcome. Thank you for joining. And if you haven't already, be sure to click follow or that little plus symbol on wherever app you listen. So that way you don't miss the next episode. Shout out to Myrtle for researching and helping to write this episode. My sources for this episode include various military appellate court opinions and news articles in KDXS 12 ABC, Air Force Times, Big Country Home, Parents.com, the Spokesman Review, Abilene Reporter News, Washington Examiner, Tyler Morning Telegraph, Go San Angelo, The Daily Mail, AP News, and findagrave.com. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions. This episode's newest associate producer is Laura, and the music was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. 
You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next time. Mom's working on her podcast. I don't want to.